Well, baby, it's Friday. It's finally here. It's not my birthday. Is wait when wait when don't tell me don't say when your birthday is on the podcast, but text me when your birthday is. Is it <laughs> is it today? No, it's not my birthday. That's what I just said. It's not my birthday. Oh. Well, women often do this false flag thing where they're like. <laughs> They, they like will never tell you your their birthday and then like two years into dating them, you're like, when's your birthday? And they're like, you don't know when my birthday is. I'm like, yeah, I don't know when your birthday is. Like, no. Oh my God. We always then, tell you when our birthday is. You're just they, not they t- listening. The thing is, they expect, you to, they expect you to remember five numbers said one time for the rest of your life. And every time you ask them to repeat those five numbers, for some reason, you're the bad guy. Well, mine's only four numbers. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? It's only four numbers. How is it only four numbers? It's six. No- Wait, what do you mean? <laughs> Without the year? There's a year. Yeah, but Wait, you just abbreviate that to the last two. So wait, mine's, oh yeah, mine's six numbers. Yeah, because you got a long yeah. one. I'm saying I got a short one. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, your birthday is a 911. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, happy birthday, Liz. Man, this has been a week here at True Nun. This is, uh... Hey, you know what they say? They say content is king, and baby, I'm the queen. The king, re- wait, wait, hold on. You're married? <laughs> okay, that, all right. Well, I'm going to have to change some future scripts I had written for sure. I'm just kidding. We don't have fucking to have scripts here at True Anon. And speaking of, this is True Anon, mother, mother, mother fucker. I embrace. <laughs> stupid. I'm Liz. So stupid. Uh, and we are joined by my husband, Young Chopsky, who's producing the episode. <laughs> Uh, I am very excited. I shouldn't have said, saying motherfucker like that. It's like such a You're fucking corny so thing so corny, man. That was uh, bad. That was maybe the corniest thing I've ever seen you do. Yeah. Well, I was, I was going to say You bitch. were taking your shirt off as you said it, too. It's uh, really hot. I was going to say bitch, but then I'm like, I, I still can't tell if I'm allowed to say that as much as I do mm. or pussy. But mm. I feel like the thing is the people who get mad at you for that thing are those things. And so, like, I... It's it's difficult. Mm. So I opted for the corny shit because, uh, well, because I'm mentally ill. But like, I, I couldn't think of another word to say. Well, the reason I said content is king is because, baby, this has been a week of us putting out episodes. <laughs> yes, yeah. And so, all right. Well, yeah, yeah. That's true. I hope I mean, people we- are not overloaded or overdosing on True Anon and are still into this because well, we've got more to go. Yeah, we have a doozy of a of a, as Liz calls them. I call them episodes, but Liz calls them sods with a little apostrophe <laughs> do from the not US. Do that. Yeah, so whenever I so Liz works her day that job sounds in this place like called, a like Nickelodeon um cartoon character who's like a pizza delivery guy. Yeah. Well, like I mean, zodes. So the last time I visited you at work, which is Empire Records, oh you were God. standing there in giant like Oshkosh bagosh overalls and a backwards hat. And you kept asking me when the new sods were coming out. That's not, that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And she was skating. Liz skates. <laughs> I'm actually not bad at skating. Uh, is that fucking true? Yeah. <laughs> Dude, that, 
really fucking pisses me off. <laughs> that is that that boy does that get under my skin? We Why? are gonna have uh, we are uh, podcast meeting after this. I'll tell you after. I don't want to tell you on air. <laughs> so okay, so uh, we this is our the fifth episode in our uh, highly acclaimed. Don't look for a citation there. Uh, mm-hmm. 9-11 series. Um, we are. We of course have our our buddy Ben at House Trotter back. Uh, one of the things we're talking about today is there's been kind of a memification of the word gladio uh, mm-hmm. recently, and we kind of wanted to break down what that was, kind of put it in its proper history, and maybe draw some some uh, you know draw your attention to maybe some relationship there potentially. Uh, with uh, the events of September 11th. Well, honey, let's put on the black masks, enter the white car, and exit to the supermarket. Start the episode. (laughs) Welcome back. Nope, that was awful. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now let's, well, just, no, let's just let's just let's just do it hey hello welcome back that was that was much more forceful we are here for 9-11 part 5 or 916 uh and i we have we have of course joining us today ben at outhouse at house trotter on twitter our independent researcher expert guest how you doing ben i'm doing well thrilled to be back yeah, I mean, it is, it is. I'm very excited for this one, too, because finally, unlike every other show we've ever done, this is something I know a little bit about, the <laughs> Mukden incident. <laughs> no, we're talking today about false flags, right? And, and I think, like, like a lot of other people, my first uh, encounter with the words came basically out of 9-11. You know, that was sort of like what the kooky people were always saying that 9-11 was. It was a false flag attack. And then that really, I feel like, caught fire. And now it, it gained a lot of prominence for a while. And now it's, it's basically little more than a meme. It's one of those things where you say it, it's so sort of outrageous and Alex Jones and Sandy Hook type, you know, uh, talking point that like people can basically not take you seriously at all. Yeah, it's been like completely uh like gutted of any meaning or any like historical uh context. Um and we here at Trunon are here to restore it to its <laughs> its rightful place in history because there actually is a very rich history of what we we what what are called like technically false flag attacks. Yeah, false flags are are a classic. I mean, you know, to to deny that they, I feel like it's even gotten to the point where people deny that they've really happened or that it's it's relevant yeah. to talk about them, that they really have had an impact because uh, they work and they're you know they're often a good way to start a war uh, or to control the, the political situation. Uh, it's a it's a very useful tactic and it's it's got a long history. So, like, uh, let's talk first about kind of the definition of what a false flag is. Uh, if the term comes from from basically naval combat um you know if you're on a ship that ship flies a flag you know if you are about to encounter an an enemy vessel flying a different flag perhaps the flag of spain for instance you might either put up a flag of a neutral country or put up a spanish flag because when they see you you know through their long monocular vision uh they'll assume that you're a friendly or at least a neutral until you get close enough and you can blast them with the broadside uh and this is a pretty like standard not so much anymore but uh 
this was a pretty standard naval tactic for quite a long time. And I'm not going to get too deep into the history of that, but let's, let's, let's define it sort of how we meet it in this context. Yeah, well, in this, in this context, a false flag attack is essentially, particularly when we talk about uh, the ones we're mostly going to talk about are, are really terrorist attacks. Yeah. So a false flag terrorist attack is a, is a terrorist attack that's carried out uh, typically against civilians, but also sometimes against police or, or other groups. Uh, and it purports to be committed by one group. And maybe the media represents it as as being done by one group, or the government says it was done by one group. And in reality, it was done by some other group. Uh, and a pretty common one that's used is is that state security agencies will masquerade as some other group uh, mm-hmm. or control some other group uh, via intermediaries and get them to carry out some kind of terrorist attack. Um, and it's done for all kinds of reasons to to you know historically to try to start a war or to, to uh, give yourself a, a, a political cover to basically do whatever it is that you want. Yeah, I think I think what you said there about starting a war is pretty germane. Because, again, like people sort of brush off the fact that false flag attacks have happened or that they'd even be a useful tactic. But we've seen multiple times within the 20th century alone false flag attacks that have had really major consequences. One such one was the Mukden incident, which was, uh, I, I believe, in 1931. It happened in areas of what would now be called China, but back then was not much of a country at all. It was sort of controlled by various competing warlords. There was a lot of Japanese troops there in what they called, I think, railway zones. Uh, and Japan wanted sort of a firmer grasp on Chinese territory back then. The Republic of China was, was, was gaining a lot of steam. There was, uh, there was uh, fighting between the KMT and the warlords. And you know it, it looked like it would become a centralized actual modern state at some point. So what the Japanese did is they got this lieutenant to plant some bombs next to a railway. Uh, The bombs go off. They barely damage the tracks. In fact, trains are running over it like 10 minutes later. But the Japanese used this this incident as pretext to invade. And that actually started the the Chinese-Japanese war as, as, as we know it, which left, I think, almost 22 million people dead. Another sort of famous incident is the Gleiwitz incident, which is, again, I'm not going to, listen, I, if, I, if I pronounce that wrong, I'm sorry, sue me. Uh, but, but that happened in 1939. The Germans and the Poles had, uh, tensions were high there. Germans had massed a lot of troops on the border. And just like they had done with Czechoslovakia, there were constant uh, newspaper headlines about these travesties committed against the Germans living in Poland by the Poles. You know, farms burned down, women raped basically everything you think of. They use the same playbook with Czechoslovakia. Uh, and, and in fact, the night before Germany invaded, they staged three incidents along the border, the most famous of which was at a radio station. The radio tower is actually still there at Gleiwitz. Uh, a guy named Alfred Naujox, uh, who's sort of like a German special forces guy, like a, a proto-Skorzeny, uh, with several other SS men, bust into this radio station take over the transmitter, announce that they're like Polish army, you know, soldiers, and they're taking it over for, for, for Poland. And they leave the body of a 42-year-old man, unmarried German farmer named Francik, uh, and dressed in a Polish uniform right outside the door. I know. I, I had to mention that for you, Liz. I, I don't believe there's any relation. I haven't found any in my research. Well, the BBC, the first name. Yeah. but yeah, this, this, this caught on. I mean, you know, first names become last names. Okay. Let's not get into name talk again. Um, but the BBC, for instance, reported that there were, there were attacks at, at radio stations, not just in one place, but all over the border that night. 
And so the Germans were, were granted a sort of veneer of respectability for the, uh, you know, apocalyptic reign of terror that they, they rained down on the mm. uh, poles for the next uh, many years. Uh, another one is Pearl Harbor, which doesn't really count as a false flag attack, but I, I mean, famously, a lot of information was known about the Japanese attack fleet that was sailing there. Uh, it turns out the White House probably withheld some of that information, although they did send the American aircraft carriers out because they wanted that attack to happen. And that's not a classic false flag, but that is, uh, I, I think, germane and within the realm of what we're talking about. I mean, that's how we've, um, like, even as we, you know, I think in like a third episode where we were kind of talking through scenarios of what we mean when we say Bush did 9-11, you know, one of, in that kind of gradation that we talked about, one very possible scenario is a lot of people knew and withheld information and let something happen right mm -hmm. and that's the same kind of way you can think about with pearl harbor um that they're very aware that something was about to happen and understood possible political ramifications and how it could be used to their benefit yeah the the well in the for in, you know in the 9-11 context right there's that's like one of the big theories like you say like the let it happen on purpose versus made it happen on purpose mm -hmm. and you know a lot of times the effect the consequence of that is basically the same thing uh you know you don't right. have to engineer it yourself you you know it's coming and so you can just you know not take certain steps and, and you get the same effect yeah that's that's i think really illustrative of like one major theme here which is that like People need to get it through their heads that the sort of powers that be are not afraid to let like citizens of their own nation or allied nations die. In fact, they will uh, <laughs> incite that violence or they'll do that violence themselves a lot of times if it achieves a concrete political aim or if it opens up possibilities for the future that uh, are positive ones to them. Uh, we also have, of course, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which was basically a whole bunch of fucking baloney involving Jim Morrison's father. <laughs> uh, and essentially phantom boat attacks on yeah. a, uh, American, uh, I think a pair of American vessels basically off the coast of North Vietnam who had been fact supplying Southern Vietnam, like commandos and American guerrillas, uh, along the coast there. Uh, th those attacks of course never happened. And that was used and really rammed through Congress basically as a way to, to get that war started. I mean, that one was so egregious that they basically like, they like let people, like they let kids be taught that it was a false flag in high schools. <laughs> That's how yeah. egregious yeah. the Gulf of Tonkin was. It's like they don't even pretend anymore that there was any kind of, you know, any shades to that at all. <laughs> and the first time I heard about that one was from McNamara in that uh, Errol Morris documentary. He basically admits it. Yeah. Like, oh, never, yeah, yeah, it yeah. It never happened, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And this, yeah, is the actually, defense, you know, this is the defense secretary, you know, at the time. I actually started watching that the other night, but fell asleep. Not because of the quality of the movie, but because it was very late at night. I mean, um, all of Errol Morris movies are kind of also directed to be fallen asleep to. Yeah, the full class, you know, music. Yeah, yeah. Very, yeah. <laughs> it's very soothing. Yeah, definitely. I also would be remiss not to mention the Levon Affair, uh, which is, I think, pretty, il pretty illustrative of how a lot of these plans can work. Uh, 1954... Nasser has taken power in Egypt. He's got a popular sort of uh, broad-based socialist movement behind him. And at this point, the U.S. hadn't totally committed. I mean, they had in a lot of cases, but not fully gone full throttle on overthrowing anybody with the hint of socialism about them yet. They were actually trying to woo Nasser for a little bit. 
and, and Nasser was very popular. Uh, the king that he replaced was not very popular. Uh, and, and so what Israel did, uh, because they, they did not want a strong Egyptian state next door to them. In fact, they wanted the British troops that were in the canal zone to stay there. They recruited uh, a, a gang of is- Egyptian Jews, uh, brought them to Israel. Uh, in fact, I believe that the agent who did that posed as British intelligence, which who knows, maybe he was, uh, trained them in explosives, in covert operations, uh, in how to organize underground organizations, sent them back to Egypt, where their plan was to bomb a, uh, American-owned movie theaters, hotels, shops, anything that was American or British-owned. I think they let off a few bombs at some post office and maybe one other spot, like I, I believe like a, a, a movie theater at one point, uh, and they were caught. The, the point was to blame the Muslim Brotherhood or the Egyptian Communist Party for these, to make it look like Nasser had, didn't have control over his country, that it was you know another one of these third world countries that had you know, tried to modernize but couldn't. Uh, thankfully, they were caught before they could kill more people. I think some of them were executed, which makes sense to me. Uh, other ones were eventually deported after an imprisonment. Um, but I think that point is is really germane to what we're going to talk about, that they were trying to blame it on either Islamic groups or communists, because that really became the game plan for the next, uh, I don't know how many decades it's been since 1954, but a lot of them. Yeah, one of the actually the way they got caught, I think, was one of the agents was an Egyptian, was also an Egyptian agent. And he told the Egyptians that he was a, a, a former SS officer. That was his cover yes. with the Egyptians. <laughs> yes, which which actually is funny. That wouldn't. There were a lot of former SS officers yeah, actually floating totally. around. Totally, it was a good cover. Point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, parts of the Egyptian security service, also parts of the Israeli security service. I mean, these guys. Uh, you know, as a guy who's part of a diaspora, I'm like, this is. They've they've got a hell of a diaspora going on. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think too, um, you know, I, I think we should bring back just from our first episode. I mean, we mentioned the, like how key the anthrax attacks were in the lead up to the invasion of Iraq, right? And there's still like, as we kind of detailed, a lot of questions <laughs> surrounding, um, you know, what transpired and exactly uh, how that those non-attacks happened but there were uh you know a lot of very prominent politicians had a lot to gain and did gain from those attacks and i think that's another one that we can kind of situate in this framework i mean i think we have to yeah that even like you know of course the fbi has admitted that the the you know scrawled uh note that was meant to implicate al-qaeda somehow right obviously it wasn't it was you know they say you know this lone nut uh, bioweapon scientists, but but much more likely the the American intelligence service, the CIA. Uh, but the you know the U.S. has also used these tactics. Uh, you know, Operation Northwoods is another big mm-hmm. example of the not as far as we know they didn't do any of them. But uh, you know, as part of this plan to get rid of Castro, uh, Kennedy basically asked the Joint Chiefs, you know, can we can we get a list of different options? You know, different things that we could do to try to get rid of Castro. And on that list is, you know, impersonating the Cuban Air Force and shooting down American airplanes, you know, commercial airliners, uh, impersonating the Cuban Navy and attacking American shipping, starting a a terrorist group in Miami and attacking civilians in Miami while pretending to be the Cuban, uh, you know, intelligence agency. 
it's it, they didn't go through with these in in that case, as far as we know. But you know, the 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 U.S. It definitely you know these are just like false flag kind of tactics are. Uh, as far as a lot of military leaders and, and intelligence leaders are concerned, completely legitimate and, and effective tactic to use in certain circumstances. Yeah, and like to be clear, as part of Northwoods, they actually planned on shooting shooting out of the water Cuban refugee ships uh, of blowing up planes. And of course, later Cuban exiles who were working for America, whether I you know no I don't know who exactly ordered this, but uh, they blew up Cuban airliners. I think with like a teenage fencing team on board. Um, and, and so like these kind of attacks against civilians and, you know, in Northwoods too, they're planning attacks against American civilians. These aren't like things that they, they really like, that took a lot of moral consideration to, to go through. Right. Like, I mean, if you, you can read the operation Northwood, um, sort of proposal that, that the joint chiefs of staff wrote up and I mean, it's blatant, it's out there in the open. It's not, you know, there's no, absolutely no moral consideration, uh, taken it. This stuff is, they discuss it like. Uh, political maneuvers or 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 military maneuvers with without really regard for cost of life. Yeah, it's completely strategic. I mean, I think that's like the key point is that they view these as like peer points of strategy, just like any other kind of military or political strategy, right? And like, so the only way to think of them aren't as like, like you said, like the moral considerations or whatever, they aren't even thought of as, at least, you know, from the perspective of joint chiefs or you know you know different generals masterminding these things like they're not even thought of as even like events they're just like little they're just like points on a map of trying to get from a to b in order to get c to happen so they can do you know x y and z well i guess one i guess like one you know thing about this is um like back in the 70s there was a document similar to northwood's it was uh, supposedly a, a sort of like an annex of some army field manual that described very similar t- tactics to Northwoods. Yeah, I don't remember what it was called off the top of my head, but um, and for and it was basically the same kind of thing. You know, you know, under certain circumstances, you know, you can pretend to be a left wing group and bomb something, etc. And at the time, people said that that was a KGB forgery that yes, they made that up to make about. to make the Americans look bad. Uh, and, you know, first off, there are people who, like Ray Klein, deputy director of the CIA, said that the document didn't look out of the ordinary to him. He did. He said he hadn't seen that one in particular, but that based on what he knew of the kinds of tactics that they would use, it didn't look out of the ordinary to him. And then Licio Gelli, who was who uh, was part of this Italian gladio, said that the CIA had given him the document himself. So it, it clearly was something that they were working on. Uh, you know, all the way back in the in the fifties and sixties. I mean, it's a it's a very accepted military tactic. Yeah, I mean, the 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 fact that there would the the KGB would have to to forge that seems sort of absurd to me because that is basically the game plan and and one of the major tactics that they used for the next many decades, not just in Europe, not just in South America, but everywhere around the globe. Well, the like favorite tactic of the U.S. is to just anything embarrassing about the U.S. politically or in the government, they would just blame on the Soviets. <laughs> yeah, that was the playbook. But you just you just mentioned something that I think we really want to get into, which is you said the buzzword of the time which is gladio which has become we were discussing before we we hopped on to record this how it's like become a bit of a meme 
um, over the past, like, I don't know, year, six months, two years, but like pretty mainstream people um, constantly saying Gladio. We've talked a little bit about it in the last episode, but I'm not so sure how many people actually really know the scope or the details of what we mean when we say Gladio. Um, And I think we should probably get into some of that because there are some important, um, you know, there's some important details to pull out as we're talking about this kind of history of false flag attacks and as it relates into 9-11, of course. But we want to kind of like, yeah, we're going to we're going to explain Gladio a little bit here, Um, because also I think some people use it as a catch all for some things that maybe aren't exactly correct. I don't know. We can get into that. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the word, it, like, first off, the the kind of meme phrase, domestic gladio, um, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, like, maybe true. So, sure. but, but, uh, but also the, the phrase, like the phrase gladio gets applied to a lot of things that I don't think really fall under it. Because mm-hmm. when I think of gladio, I think of like, f- false flag terrorism to advance right wing, the state's right wing political goals. Like, that's yes. what gladio. Yes. Know, I, like, I, I also, I, I, I would say that, but also maybe fostering an environment where terrorism will naturally envelop or develop yeah. rather and and exploiting any sort of like current violence for right wing political goals, mm. yeah yeah, definitely and the and I mean like uh, so the you know the word gladio comes from the Italian version of this, uh you know where the the i mean the I don't know how much we want to talk about like the post war uh, political context, but certainly oh, yeah. in France, certainly in France and Italy, the the communists, you know, having been, you know, the liberators of those two countries from the Nazis, uh, they they were quite popular, and, and of course, it had mm-hmm. been popular before that. So the U.S. was very very worried about uh, France and Italy, especially um, just because Italy was you know geographically further east, uh, becoming communist and and having internal. Uh, elections that led to, you know, communists controlling the parliament. Uh, and so basically they decided that was not going to happen under any circumstances. And so they, kind of simultaneous to this, were creating this uh, stay-behind army, uh, which was kind of inspired by by Gellin's idea of, like, the wolfman or, or what did he call it? Werewolf. Like, werewolf, yes. Yeah. You know, the idea that these people would be civilians by day and at night they would be anti-communist you know, saboteurs, assassins. Um, and he he kind of introduced that idea to, like, pr- before even NATO existed, like the proto-NATO. And the idea was, let's create these uh, stay-behind militias of right-wing uh, Nazis, former, you know, fascists, just generally right-wing people, who in the event of a Soviet invasion of Western Europe, they would be there to uh, provide intelligence, you know, be saboteurs behind enemy lines, that sort of thing. Um, well, the, with with Werewolf too. I mean, so the Werewolf program was initiated by the Nazis at the very end of World War II when they were, uh, well, they weren't doing so great, and uh, and and the Russians and the Americans were closing in pretty quick. They they had this kind of idea that you know maybe the Nazi leadership would go to a national redoubt, you know, basically a mountain fortress, and in the rest of the occupied country, these terrorist groups would emerge and you know start killing generals. There were very few murders attributed to werewolf actually after the fact, but there were a lot of weapons, radio, and food caches buried. And and we see that, I mean, Christ, I don't know, dotting fucking Europe, there must be thousands of caches of like, 
you know, MP44s or whatever, MP40s out there. Um, but but Gellin, like who you mentioned, for those who don't know, uh, General Reinhard, uh, Reinhard Gellin, I think it is, or am I thinking of Heydrich? Well, anyways, his last name is Gellin. Uh, he was he was sort of a Nazi spy chief uh, towards the end of the war, and then immediately after the war, created the Gellin Organization, which became West Germans intelligence, but also a lot more than that. And it was staffed almost exclusively with ex, not just like, you know, Wehrmacht men, but SS men. Yeah. And, and that, I mean, the, you, you talk about these, you know, weapons caches that the Nazis had all over Germany and like they, the, the NATO basically uh, absorbed like that physical infrastructure and used that yep. as their weapons caches for these, for these stay behind uh, armies, you know, secret armies. And uh, in, in Italy, it was called Operation Gladio, uh, in you know in Belgium it was SDRA eight they had all kinds of different code names in the different countries but Gladio became the first one that people knew about uh, because Andriotti uh, who was the prime minister of of Italy in 1990 admitted it he was forced to admit it uh, because there was an ongoing criminal investigation of some of these bombings that had been done uh, in Italy by right wing terrorists and they were discovering that. Uh, these bombings that had been blamed on the left or on anarchists or it wasn't known who did them, they were committed by uh, right-wing paramilitaries uh, that were supported by the Italian intelligence service, by the Italian political elite uh, and military. Don't forget uh, and so, industrialists. And of course, the industrialists. I mean, <laughs> We love know, our industrialists. <laughs> yeah, we should definitely talk about P2. Uh, but yeah. the, but Andriotti was basically forced to admit that this existed. And he... he gave a very limited admission, you know, that it was just intended to be this stay behind. Uh, but it was very quickly discovered that it, it was actually used by uh, this Italian elite, uh, often at the direction of the CIA, uh, for very specific political purposes, uh, basically to control Italy's political system and ensure that the left wing uh, would never have power uh, within the, the Italian government. Yeah, and to be clear, when we say, just for people who aren't aware of this history, I mean, when we say bombings and terrorist attacks, what we're talking about are like, uh, I, I mean, like massive bombings where, where, I mean, hundreds of people were killed, uh, thousands injured. And this was going on for, I mean, what, like 30 years? Yeah, I think something like that. Yeah, I mean, really, they say the core of Gladio is like 1969 to 1987. Right. And during that period, like almost 500 people died, which, you know, in the context of like 9-11 or other terrorist attacks like that, it seems small. Um, but at the time, I mean, it was considered by the population to be essentially a low-level civil war. Right, right, There was right. also terrorist attacks that didn't kill anybody either. Bombings of political party offices. Mm -hmm. Well, that's mostly what it was. Bombing of police stations and stuff. Uh, fascists uh, were apparently, I read this statistic somewhere, responsible for about 68% of these. So the left was engaging in, in, in violence. Like, you know, to be clear, the Italian left actually made, had some, you know, pretty heroic struggles during that time, as, as did their counterparts in Greece, in France, in Germany, uh, uh, and not so successfully in America or, or Britain. But, you know, it was, it was 68 and, 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 and afterwards. And so, like, you know, there was street violence, there was uh, sort of terror violence, but in Italy, the right became basically ascendant during all of this. I mean, they were really able to, to kind of capture this, uh, this extremely well. Yeah, and I think uh, that's a really good point you bring up about the left-wing political violence. And uh, when the Piazza Fontana bombing happened, um, the, the suspicion immediately fell to the right wing, and part of this was because 
the I don't know why he said this, but the very right wing uh, interior minister at the time, Francesco Casica, said, you know, the left attacks uh, people it sees as representatives of the elite bankers, prominent politicians, things like that, whereas the right wing, uh, you know, attacks civilians. Uh, to try mm-hmm. to create this, as you say, this kind of situation of unrest that the state can can then take advantage of. Yeah, this is also where I I was hoping you could explicate for our listeners where this term strategy of tension comes from, because it comes straight from this, like, from Gladio. But this is another thing that people have been kind of recently throwing around. But it is like an explicit strategy for ma- kind of stage managing like different political forces, right? It's kind of like a, I mean, I I think stage managing is like the perfect way to put it. It's almost like puppeteering um, a constant kind of state of unrest, suspicion, anxiety, um, and polarization. Yeah, I mean, when you put it in context, there's a lot of logic to it. Like, you know, if you look at 1948, um, this was like one of Alan Dulles' first big operations uh, before he was running the CIA. He essentially manipulated the 1948 Italian election to make sure that uh, the DCI, the, the Italian Christian Democratic Party, which was this uh, basically the furthest right party that was acceptable to the, you know, you couldn't have an out and out, you know, right wing or fascist party in Italy anymore because people weren't going to, you know, accept that. But it was a moderate, a moderate party that really acted as Italy's right wing. And so the, the CIA, you know, the Office of Policy Coordination directly supported the, uh, the, the right wing in that election. And part of what they did was they would just smear the communists as being terrorists and they would, mm. you know, just make stuff up. It didn't have any basis in fact. So it makes sense that not long after that, they start, they say, okay, well, if we can accuse them of being terrorists, why not actually make them look like terrorists? Yep. Let's blow things up. Let's kill people. And let's say it was them. Um, and it, you know, I mean, the, the, this is pretty well documented. There's a, pr- a really good, uh, BBC documentary that I think only ran yeah. a few times before they have stopped, stopped running it. Uh, <laughs> Funny how that happens. Funny. But, uh, yeah. It just gets, whoop. is it, yeah. is it a panorama right one? I know they interview Michelle Sandone on a panorama one. I don't know if it's the same one, but I think I've it's, I think it's like about. the time watch series. I think it's what it's under. Um, uh, but it's Alan Frankovich, uh, uh, was the was the guy who made it, um, and he has on the record interviews with you know high ranking people in the Italian elite who ordered these attacks and and controlled these groups, uh, and they say look you know the CIA asked us to do this the CIA gave us this money you know mm-hmm. we were direct we were told to do this by the State Department uh, it's it's very clearly it's you know goes beyond the Italian elite and, and leads directly back to the CIA. Uh, so it's it's and then when you you know when you look at what they actually did uh, in terms of uh, uh, you know going so far as to assassinate kidnap the the prime minister and assassinate him uh, I mean that's a that's a very very serious uh, you know invasion of of the Italian political process by you know these American interlocutors. Yeah, I think with the case of Italy, it's really like you can see sort of the extremes that America went through, but you can also see this play out all over the globe. You know, in past episodes, we talked to Vince Bevins about Indonesia, and you can see the support that that the right was given there, but also the tactics employed by the right, where they would blame the, the left for all these, you know, sometimes really just a bizarre, you know, literally magical atrocities. And then we see that same thing applied in Chile. Where, where, which is, I think, a much more analogous situation 
where where the uh, the American government supported the you know Christian Democratic Party there with a lot of money, basically kept them afloat. The Communist Party, or rather the Socialists uh, behind Allende, were very popular, uh, and and they went to really great lengths to uh, to get them out of there. And we can see with 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 the Pinochet coup and with the murder of Allende, uh, uh, what would have happened in Italy and a lot of other countries, sort of if things had gone further, right? Like Chile is basically Italy if the left had won an election. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, in Italy, they still assassinated a prime minister. You know? Yeah, it's, yeah, true, it's... true. Yeah, even just the thought. But he of wasn't a left wing prime minister, right? No, exactly. Just the fact that he was—you know—this was to, I guess, to, to explain what we're talking about. Aldo Moro, uh, the the DCI had this right wing, uh, you know, Andriotti, who we've mentioned, but they also had this guy Aldo Moro, who was much more in the middle, and he was sort of uh, because he was not. So you know, Andriotti was part of this P two Masonic um, Lodge group, which was this elite. Uh, uh, basically, every, all of the elites across Italian society—military, intelligence, political, business—were uh, all part of this group, and they frequently would get together and, and kind of discuss where you know what should happen in Italy now. Uh, and Moro was not really a part of this this clique of people, uh, and so you know when the communists and the socialists did really well in the Italian elections in 1976, he said, "Look, I have to include these people in my government. They mm-hmm. have won as many votes as we have." Um, and so, and Kissinger told him not to do this because because Kissinger knew what the polls were going to be, and he, and uh, Moro told his wife that Kissinger basically said if you if you do this if you let the communists and socialists into your government you will pay the price, uh, and he did he was uh, he was I think he was either on the way to to have a discussion with one of these parties yep um, uh, I think he was on the way to the communists. Yeah, yeah, to discuss, you know, when you form a government with these parties, you basically say, yeah. okay, you know, Moro is going to be the prime minister, but they'll maybe be a communist, you know, minister of, Health of minister defense. Or, yeah. Exactly. Right. They, they wouldn't the communists, defense. They would, yeah. Yeah. The PC, yeah. By the way, exactly. to, to a little background on this, the PCI, the Communist Party of Italy, uh, was a neutralist, which is about as good as you could be as a, a communist, mainstream communist party in the West, meaning it, uh, Italy would withdraw from NATO. Yeah. And even even in the 60s, the, I mean, the, both parties moved right over time. But even in the early 60s, the socialists wanted to pull Italy out of NATO. So it was a it was a fairly mainstream position to, for Italy to leave NATO. Obviously, it was not acceptable to the mm-hmm. American elite. So they were not going to right, they were not going to let the communists or the socialists be the defense minister. They'd get like health or, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, HHS or like, you know, yeah. transportation. Exactly. <laughs> But he's he's on his way to do this, and he gets kidnapped uh, by this uh, Red Brigade left-wing group. Uh, and it turns out that this group uh, had been infiltrated by the CIA. Many of the leaders uh, were connected to this Hyperion Language School, which was a CIA front in Paris. Um, and and also, the uh, Carter sent a deputy assistant secretary uh, from the State Department to go be the hostage negotiator. Uh, hmm. I can't remember what his name is, but uh, he he basically said that um, that the so what one of the things that they did was this there was this crisis committee with this guy from the U.S. from the State Department and Francesco Casaga, uh, who was the Interior Minister at the time. He was also part of this sort of propaganda due elite uh, group. They sent a false letter uh, from the supposed left wing terrorist that said that Moro had been killed already when he hadn't been. He was still alive. And what this letter was meant to signify to the terrorists is, we're not going to negotiate with you. Uh, you're not going to get anything you want, so you might as well kill 
Moro, which is what ended up happening. So whether they were directly controlled by by the CIA, this supposed left-wing terrorist group or not, they were forced into a corner where uh, Kasuga clearly wanted Moro dead, and so just told the press, told the Italian public that he had been killed when he was still alive. And so, uh, you know, they found him in his car. I think they, I think they symbolically placed his car halfway. Uh, yeah, halfway between the the political headquarters of the the PCI and the and the DCI. Um, and, and to add on to that, I mean, what Ben's saying here is that like this was a message supposedly sent from the far left to the more conciliatory left, right? And so this had a couple of different effects. You know, first of all, they kill a prime minister. I mean, this I'm talking from the CIA's point of view. They kill a prime minister who was going to do something they didn't want him to do. Uh, and they're able to create splits in the left as well. I mean, the left doesn't often need help creating those splits, but those can certainly be divided with these. I mean, especially in the 60s and 70s when there was a real tension uh, between street tactics and parliamentary tactics. Uh, in, in a lot of these groups, which I, I think would probably even call themselves ultra left, uh, and, and again, some of whom were were you know were groups that did good work, uh, were able to be used by by these intelligence agencies. We saw this. We saw this happen. This has happened over and over and over with, within the '60s and '70s in not only Italy but but France and Germany. Um, I think we should get into a couple of these bombings, maybe, to really like explain how these worked. Uh, I, you mentioned earlier the uh, the Piazza Fontana bombing. Did you like that accent there? A little slight one. That was nice, Chris. <laughs> that was good. Uh, and 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 I think this was at this point one of the larger terrorist attacks, not the largest. That was that was to come later uh, in 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 Italian history. I mean, it, to be clear, Italian history. Doesn't stretch back very far. They've been a country for like fifty years at this point, um, but uh, well, longer than that. But uh, you know, these were pretty professional operations. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it was it was four, you know, very uh, similar. You know, they they happened almost at the same time. I think it was soon, just before Christmas in, in nineteen sixty nine. Uh, there were two in Milan and two in Rome. And they ended up killing over a dozen people, uh, which, as you say, at the time was a was a pretty big, uh, a pretty big deal. Uh, and it was it was blamed by the press and by the government on anarchists. They said mm-hmm. that it was it was anarchists that had done it. They actually uh, rounded up a lot of them, and, and one of them was killed during an interrogation. He was thrown out of a window. Uh, I'm sorry, he had a f- heart attack and fell out the window. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> right, he had a heart attack and then and then tripped uh, over yes. a rake and as he was slipped. like grabbing his heart, yeah, yes. and being like, "I did the bombing." And yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then Last just poof, out the window. Well, we wouldn't even know that. We actually wouldn't know. I can't remember that anarchist's name, but but we wouldn't even know that except that a journalist who worked for a communist party newspaper was literally walking through the courtyard when this this anarchist i believe he was a railway worker and uh one of the heads of the anarchist black cross fell out of the window and of course coroners figured out he was dead before he fell but yeah i mean that was clearly a message too yeah and they i mean they took they took one of the um i think one of the bombs didn't explode or there was some there was some remains of it left over and they planted it at an anarchist uh writer Mm -hmm. and journalist's house you know to try again to try to tie the the left wing to it 
Uh, and it wasn't. And we now now we know, and, and they've admitted to it, it was the Ordine Nuovo, uh, which mm-hmm. was one of these right-wing uh, neo-fascist groups in Italy, uh, which was controlled by the uh, Italian intelligence uh, service basically throughout this entire period. I mean, they said that they did it, you know, on the orders of, I don't remember, the Italian, basically every like 10 years, they they shut down the Italian intelligence service for, yep. being, for doing this. And then they make a new one with a different name. I don't remember which name it was at this point. But uh, but yeah, that's who they were working with. Yeah. And, and there's another case too, where a member of Ordine Nuovo, Ordine Nuovo was sort of like the uh, Italian terrorist version. There, there, the mainstream Italian fascist party was the MSI, which I think it's like movements, Italian social movement or whatever. Alessandro Mussolini, who, by the way, if you're listening to this, your, your husband did get arrested for having sex with underage girls. I have not. So if you want to get drinks, we could fix things for you. Anyways, uh, I do think she's hot. The, uh, and her album's good. And that movie she made in Israel looks pretty good, even though I can't watch it because of BDS. But uh, so at one point in Ordi Nuovo, I mean, they, they were actually, these guys were really set on infiltrating the left themselves. And it often didn't work because there's only about 500 members, like full-fledged members of Ordi Nuovo. Uh, and, and they, uh, they were pretty well known, you know, they were, uh, they were sometimes given truncheons by the police to go break up strikes or left-wing rallies. And at one point there was, there was one of their members had bomb making materials. He had actually just set off a bomb somewhere and he was posing as a left winger and he would just go around to different, uh, Maoist groups in, I think Rome and be like, Hey comrades, like, could you hold on to these materials for me? Like I'm wanted by the police. And everyone's like, what? No, like absolutely not. He found one guy, which, you know, I'm sure everyone can think of the one person that they know that might do this, who was like, Oh yeah, comrade. Absolutely. Like it was literally the third Maoist group they tried. Uh, he took the bombs and then the guy immediately called the cops. and was like, this guy has bombs. But the Maoist, which is classic uh, Mao Zedong thought right here, had actually thrown the bomb-making material away. He didn't keep it in his house for the guy. Uh, and, and so it came up empty. But, like, you know, we see, like, there's actual legit infiltration that they're trying to do here. I mean, and not just from, you know, full-fledged, like, office, you know, uh, uniform members of the intelligence service, but from these sort of rank-and-file guys right here. And I think, I think Ordine Novo is worth mentioning, too, because they were started by a guy whose name I'm going to mispronounce, although I... Uh, we've had guests pronounce it before, so let's see how Ben does it today. Uh, named Stefano Derechai, um, who is, I think, one of the biggest bastards of the 20th century, which he's a lot of company in. Yeah, that uh, you. I think you were uh, talking about that Stuart Christie book uh, about mm-hmm. him. Uh, I think Portrait of a Black Terrorist or something like that. Yeah, very cool title, by the way. It, yes. The book looks great. Yes. Oh, yeah, it's got his face on the cover. Yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's like a but, fantastic looking thing, yeah. 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 And he, I mean, uh, I think he came up, I think either Recluse or, or maybe Michael or, or both may have mentioned him both, in the context yeah. of Operation Condor uh, in South America, where he was working with these right wing death squads uh, over there. But he got his he got his start in Italy, uh, right, running this Ordine Nuovo group. Uh, he was also in contact with some of these uh, Le Cirque groups that we talked about on the on the previous mm-hmm. episode. You know, he was often a point of contact along with uh and I, I'll mispronounce this guy's name, but Yves Garin Sarak. That's uh, so much better than I try. I literally was standing in my living room trying to say it earlier several times. <laughs> I was like, Ben's gonna think it's so dumb. And, but he was, uh, he was. I'll, I'll probably say it differently the next time. Now that I've, now that I've done it well <laughs> the first time. Uh, but he was another of these people who, you know, he Yves Garin Sarak was was also involved as as a liaison between the intelligence service 
uh, and these terrorist groups like Ordi Nuovo. And he also had contacts to, uh, for example, Andriotti and, and people in this Propaganda Due Lodge, as well as in Le Cirque. So th- those two guys in particular were, were uh, kind of this uh, nexus point between all these different, there were a, a cutout, essentially, between those, those kind of circles. Yeah, Sirac has a quote. So Sirac had been in the OAS, which we talked about with Michael, the 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 you know that French civil war that happened, uh, you know, over Algeria basically. Um, and after the defeat of them in Algeria, after the putsch failed, he he moved to Portugal. Which is, by the way, if you are a fascist whose putsch fails in Western Europe, you're buying the first fucking plane ticket to Portugal. I don't know why. But they're always buying plane tickets to Portugal. The Spanish fascists were actually supposed to be led by this guy, General Sanjuro, in like this 36. And he was like in Port- Portugal. It wasn't supposed to be Franco. This guy tries to take off, but he insisted on putting so many fucking uniforms in the plane that the plane was overloaded with this guy's <laughs> clothes and it fucking crashes and he dies and Franco gets to be in charge. And Franco, who's a good strategist, wins the fucking war. So what I'm saying here is streetwear guys. Really, you got to watch out if you're going to do a push because these planes, I know they can hold more now, but not always. That's an incredible detail of history. It's one of my favorite ones. That's amazing. I first read that as a teenager. There's so much to think of that could, I mean, if that, yeah, it's, yeah. And this is like Spanish generals uniforms. So we got, we're talking plumes. We're talking sashes. (laughs) But just the idea that it wasn't supposed to be Franco and just like by like a total... Just some guys, you know, Johns changed the course of history. For all you neats out there, Franco was a loser too, man. He was bald. He looked like shit. Had no friends. Lived on a fucking island, but not even a cool one. And just through an accident of history, he somehow became the leader of a. Fa- he wasn't even. He didn't even care about fascism or anything. He was just like, I'm just going to be in charge. And then kept everyone fighting each other until, for some reason, the Carlists became like Maoist in the 60s, which I really still do not understand. If you know why the Carlist movement in Spain started getting—not Maoist. They started getting really into Yugoslavia in the 60s. Please let me know because I am baffled by that. Um, Anyway, so (laughs) Sirach has—like I was saying originally, sorry. Sirach has a quote which I think is really uh, illustrative of what we're talking about here. This was in the Paris match in 1974, and I got this from, from Christie's book. He says, The others have laid down their arms, but not I. After the OAS, I fled to Portugal to carry on the fight and expand it to its proper dimension, which is to say, a planetary dimension. We got to mention here the... the bel- bel- One of you has to take over. I can't do this. One of you has to take over. The bull. I'll, I'll do it. I could do it. I could do it. Do it. So I guess the 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 next, well, the probably the the one that is most well known is the Bologna massacre, uh, and that's because it killed the most people. Uh, and again, on the scale of what we would think of today as being a major terrorist attack post nine eleven, it doesn't really rate. Uh, but eighty five people were killed uh, when a bomb was planted inside the train station of Bologna, and uh, I think something like two hundred two hundred people were wounded. Uh, and this, this, you know, the, because this part of Italy had historically been also where the PCI was very strong, uh, the left wing in general was very strong uh, in, this, in this region. So at first they just, I don't know why, but at first they said it was an accident that's, you know, a steam engine. I guess they were still using steam trains in Italy at this time. But that's something like a steam engine had blown up or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then... It's, I but, mean, if you look at pictures of, of the, the aftermath, I mean, it is, it is apocalyptic. 
Yeah, know, the whole. I mean, the whole awful. train station is completely is completely blown apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I mean, what they the way that they blamed it on the communists is that they uh, had a supposed explosives expert who was actually a member of one of these far right wing uh, paramilitary groups testify that the explosives that were used uh, were similar to ones that, that were used by the left. Uh, mm-hmm. That was how they that was how they you know con- were convinced of it. Um, the eventually it became very clear uh, that it was a right wing group, and there's a lot of controversy over which one it is. Some people say it was this Terza Posizione group, uh, the the NAR. I'm not even going to try, but the, the the armed the nucleus of armed revolution was this other far right wing group yep. in Italy that was also blamed for this. I think they were the ones who were sort of officially uh, convicted of having done it. But there's people yeah, I think was... I think in the, there's like a bunch of civil cases brought by the victims' families, and I think it's also interesting that like the word nuclei is used in a lot of these sort of terrorist cells on both the left and right in Italy and in Greece, which I don't know, it's very strange to me. It's cool. It is. There is kind of like a like there's this fascist belief, you know, kind of like in uh, propaganda of the deed, like we'll you know we'll blow this thing up and and I don't know through some mystical yeah, power. Absolutely. But the left also has like Foucault theory that you know mm-hmm. we'll do this kind of. Uh, start this armed revolution with i don't know somehow but uh but definitely this was not something that the left would not be interested in just massacring a bunch of civilians at a train station i mean that's not something that they actually would have been interested in doing um and this i mean the you know licio jelly who is who is director of the propaganda due uh, masonic lodge uh comes up again and again in these investigations when the italian senate is trying to figure out who did this uh, a lot of a lot of different uh, avenues of investigation lead back to the P2 Lodge and to to Licio Jelly specifically, um, and you know through him, I mean that's he, he's one of the, the sort of the, the key cutouts for these uh, for the CIA Italian elite uh, Italian intelligence service connection. Uh, so it, I think it pretty clearly points in that direction that those were the people who were responsible for this. Yeah, we sort of talked a little bit around P2, but we should probably get into actually who these people were because they're one of that's like one of the weirder organizations <laughs> in this entire tapestry. Um and they're very much at front and center in and you know, like you said with a lot of these um with a lot of these different attacks. But can you explain a little bit about Propaganda Due? Yeah, I never. I, that's a good point. Like, I don't understand why is a Masonic lodge running, you know, running this <laughs> Italian political operation. Not just Italy too, but there were there were similar lodges, although not as prominent. In basically, I mean, it was P two for a reason. There were other P's too. Yeah, I mean, they're yeah, yeah. Way less known because we know about P two because of of documents actually being found, and we only see sort of oblique references to the rest of it. But it's funny too because first of all, a lot of these guys are super Catholic. And you're not really supposed to be in a Masonic Lodge if you're Catholic. And in fact, secret organizations that you have to take an oath to join were banned in Italy at the time, which makes it all very strange, too. Yeah, I mean, it's also like that mafia connection, right? Because that's mm-hmm. obviously like the target yeah, of the band is to try to try to get these mafia-affiliated, you know, civic organizations. Uh, but yeah, so Propaganda Due was, was, you know, ostensibly a Masonic Lodge. Uh, it was really basically one of the back rooms in Italy where a lot of these political machinations uh, were discussed. Um, I think it, you know, like you mentioned, Brace, like we don't know everything that went on with this group, but one of the things that they definitely were running uh, was this Gladio mm-hmm. uh, operation. I mean, they were really the ones 
who served as the intermediary between, as I mentioned earlier, the CIA, uh, but also just a way for the Italian elite uh, to discuss this stuff. So some of the big, I mean, some of the big members of this, you know, we've mentioned Giulio uh, Andriotti a bunch. He was defense minister. He was prime minister of Italy all uh, at, at various periods through this, you know, from like the late 50s to early 90s. Um, another one was uh, Francesco Casago, who I mentioned earlier. He was the interior minister, uh, definitely responsible for a lot of this. Uh, but then uh, you also have industrialists, people like Carlos Pacenti, who was one of the big, uh, big financiers in Italy, owned, I think, owned Fiat and a bunch of other industrial uh, companies in Italy. So these people were also connected uh, to Le Cirque, which was, you know, this kind of the international elite organization, uh, particularly European at this point in time. Um, so they had these connections as well to similar types of people in, in other, uh, other European countries. Um, so, the, I mean, this really was the elite group and, and sort of where the, you know, because obviously who, who doesn't, why don't you want the communists to be in charge of Italy? Because you don't want to harm the Italian business concerns right. uh, is a big part of it. Part of it is, you know, the sort of geopolitical considerations as far as the U.S. is concerned. They don't want the Soviet Union advancing in Western Europe. But a huge part of it also is, you know, the industrial concerns do not want workers uh, unionizing or, or getting paid more or, God forbid, mm. running the government and nationalizing companies. They definitely don't want that. So they have a huge stake in wanting to ensure that Italy stays right wing. And so, you know, part of the way of doing that is being in contact with people in the military, people in the intelligence service saying, hey, you know, can we make something happen here? Yeah. And, and I think it, I think it's good to mention, too, that like there's also a lot of people in the media on this list, including, ironically, a, a journalist who at one point uh was actually reporting on P2 and Gladio and got assassinated for it. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the P2 list basically is a popular front of everybody in Italy who would not want uh, a more prominent role for the working peoples of Italy in the government, <laughs> uh, God forbid, to run it. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really something that they create these organizations. And like, I, I want to be clear here. We're talking about specifically Italy because Italy is such a good test case because we know so much about it. But this was happening in every single Western European country. And you can be sure that a version of this was happening here, too. I mean, you could argue that a version of this did happen here as well. Um, not with a communist gain power. But it's, it's, it's really astounding. Like, these guys put a lot of energy, sunk a lot of money, and like really behind the scenes guided Italy. And behind these guys was the hand of the Americans. None of this stuff was happening without American, at, at the very least, acquiescence and at really realistically, uh, you know, either control or companionship. Yeah, I think I think um, just bringing in, you know, the NATO issue uh, yeah. just briefly, you know, the, the NATO really began with this Gladio operation. Uh, even before NATO existed, there was this Western Union that was this like sort of informal union of uh, the, the former allies, kind of the Western European liberated countries immediately post-World War II. And they like basically immediately started forming these these secret armies and it was integrated into NATO. But obviously, if if the framework that your uh, means of controlling the political process is NATO, you have to make sure that Italy stays in NATO and never leaves NATO. And so the uh, one of the, as you mentioned, Brace earlier, you know, one of the big political positions for the left in Italy uh, was that Italy should leave NATO. 
So certainly the Americans, you know, did not want to see that happen. They wanted to make sure that because this was also, you know, this was a way for the Americans to control the, the Italian political system. So they don't want Italy to leave NATO. That's the structure within which they're able to do this and have this secret army. So well, it's, look what it's happened a, when de Gaulle left. I mean, he, he did yeah. not. Well, uh, yeah, exactly. They, they freaked out. And, it, and it, it probably legitimately did. I mean, it did militarily weaken the alliance. You know, France ended up Respect. having a completely separate, uh, you know, defense. In theory, they would not have joined a Western European war with the Soviet Union. They would have had their, you know, they would have maybe formed their own peace with the USSR. You know, who knows? So the, uh, the U.S. definitely didn't want to see that spread. Uh, and, and in particular, didn't want the communists, the socialists in charge. I mean, so much so that there was even, when we're talking about these events, I mean, there was even a failed, or not a failed, but a, there was a coup, a, a planned coup attempt that um, ended up not going through, which we can kind of get into why. But that's the what we call the Borghese coup. Um, and I think that, when was that? That was like 1970, maybe? 1972? Yeah, I think it was 71. Because he was inspired to do it by the second Grand Funk Railroad album. <laughs> so I was connected to that. Borghese's wild because first of all, it's one of the few names that we've said that I can pronounce. Um, but Borghese was a real Otto Scorzani type motherfucker. He was he was literally the Italian Otto Scorzani. He was he was in charge of I think Italy's what they're called frogmen, uh, which is essentially their navy seals. And I want Truanon fans will know this, longtime listeners will know. We are 100% against all Navy SEALs, no matter what country. <laughs> Almost as bad as paratroopers. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah I've, I, God, we'll, we'll talk about this after, but Recluse's, uh, Recluse's series on like the uh, special forces of worldwide is fantastic. It convinced me that I'm, I'm definitely no longer paying my Green Beret dues. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the Bor- Borghese was, was like a son of a bitch. I mean, he was like an Italian fascist. The, the Italians famously... People always give the shit to the French for like surrendering and waffling and switching sides. The Italians were really like they were they were not sold on fascism by 1943. And and uh and so when Mussolini is rescued by Otto Scorzani and creates the Salo Republic in the north, Borghese also goes up there and becomes essentially like a state terrorist for the fascists. 1945 comes along, and I believe he is, uh, you might have to take it from here, but he is captured by left-wing partisans. Yeah, because, I mean, this was a time period where sort of left-wing partisans were uh, engaged in, in really a liberation, like trying to liberate Italy and the Salo Republic from the fascists, from the Nazis. And so, uh, yeah, Borghese, is, is a death, he's leading death squads, essentially. They're going around and massacring uh, just civilians and massacring left-wingers. He gets captured, and this is, you know, they had they had just strung Mussolini up by a gas station, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, much so, to uh, much to the Americans, uh, oh yeah, disapproval then too. Yeah, Boy, they, they were not, not happy. Like, they actually that. tricked the Americans. They're like, oh no, Mussolini's here, and meanwhile they're like, all right, we're just gonna shoot him. <laughs> yeah, and and so they they Borghese gets captured. And they're gonna do the same thing to him uh, for murdering all these people. And the uh, it was it was Angleton. Angleton found out about this. And sent a jeep. They put Borghese in an American military uniform and put him on a jeep and drove him to a safe house in Rome. Uh, and then they basically kept him. He's kind of like the Nigel Farage of Italian politics, where he's like he's like <laughs> never. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even. But he, you know, he's like a he's like legit, you know, aristocratic, you know, yeah, like not, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, basically royalty. He's a count. 
Yeah, he's like a count. He was one of the. He was from one of the families that uh, sided with the Pope uh, after the papal states were, you know, were encircled and, and uh, forced to become part of the Italian Republic. Like that's how. That's how like, you know, reactionary that that family is. Oh, also, I was gets, wrong. He's a prince. I just said count because it sounds scarier. <laughs> but he gets like they basically put him on ice and keep him around. You know, in the event that there's a coup and they need somebody to come in, he's going to be their. You know, he's going to be their figurehead. He's going to be their pinochet. Uh, and they try to do that. Uh, I think, yeah, I think it was like 1971. Uh, they basically put all of their sort of uh, right-wing fascist groups. Uh, they had elements within the the Carbonieri, which is like the Italian gendarmes or like, uh, I don't know, like kind of paramilitary group. I don't know. We don't really have that in the U.S. But there, uh, There's no real equivalent, but it's like if the FBI had an office and a presence in your town and like drove around and arrested people. Yeah, which they kind of do now, I guess. But uh, yeah, yeah, I guess so that's it's true. Like, yeah. It's basically like that, like they, they, uh, but that's so they, so they were about to do it. And supposedly there's a few sources that say that Nixon decided to call it off, uh, at the last minute Mm -hmm. and uh, supposedly that the Soviets had found out about it and that they were, I don't know, taking some kind of action. I don't know how much I believe that, but in any case, uh, it certainly, it, it definitely scared the left. Uh, and there have been other instances before this where, uh, you know, there was an attempted coup or a planned coup or a threatened coup to sort of keep the uh, keep Aldo Moro in particular in line and, and mm-hmm. to sort of keep the left uh, out of power in, in Italy. I, I think like a good well, not a good, but a, a the old, the closest analogy, I'll say that is kind of like I, I think, you know, people right now can feel this has been a hot summer, as you might call it. And it's 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 getting to be a hot autumn as well. And like, to be clear, there's, I don't think there's gonna be a coup in America or anything, but you can feel it building up to something. And, and I think back then, I mean, you know, these, these instances of, of terror attacks and these, you know, these far right provocateurs, this was happening with such regularity that it was almost like a drumbeat that was growing faster and faster and faster. And so like people smelled a coup, you know, like we know about this now, but people could just sense it back then. I think a really a really funny little detail here is a bit of a Nixon connection too, because this coup was basically financed was financed by a bunch of industrialists. But there were a couple of guys, one Pierre Talente, and another guy who was an MSI, a fascist MP named Luigi Turchi, who would go around basically collecting funds from Italian industrialists. You know, a little bit of coup money here and there. Uh, both of these guys were later members of Creep, the committee to reelect the president. But I'm a creep. Which is that when I read that, I got a little shiver of delight. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's a, 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 I think Luigi Turchi was actually part of the Nixon campaign to appeal to Italian Americans. So Nixon had a actual fascist politician elected into office in Italy going around America for him being like, uh, you Vincenzo, send five dollars to the Nixon HQ. <laughs> uh, I mean, he was really going around to, to Italian businessmen. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just incredible. Yeah, I guess like the that's that concept of like a drumbeat or that people could feel it. Mm. Like it's one thing to see it written down on paper. But like at the time, you know, the it was a it was obviously a really good, useful psychological warfare tactic that you would create this atmosphere of tension where this people were sort of anticipating that something was going to happen. And even though, you know, people had different opinions about, was it the left doing this? Was it the right doing this? And, and whatever was actually the truth, you know, in the moment, it created this uh, sort of uneasy, uncertain political environment where the state could, 
for example, mobilize soldiers in the street and, mm. and people wouldn't question it. It would be sort of, okay, well, that's because we're in this situation where there's terrorism and we need these, you know, police on the street to protect us. Uh, so it provides this, it provides this uh, excuse or cover for why the state is becoming uh, more omnipresent in the street. Why are they, why do they need to take these, uh, these sort of preemptive measures uh, that are, that are really anti-democratic uh, and that's obviously something that that happens in the United States post nine eleven as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's not even just um, like where people sudden. It's it's not so much, or not simply just that people see kind of uh, an increase in state presence or what have you as being necessary. As it also creates, like, I mean, you know, when you say it's powerful, like psychologically. I think that's really the key because it also creates a real desire for the state to come in. And you start seeing, um, you know, from both liberals and conservatives or right wing right wingers in the case of Europe. I mean, it's, you know, it's more complicated in the United States how we talk about <laughs> the kind of well, they're all spectrum. Liberals, yeah. But like, you know, you start seeing like more and more calls for respectable state intervention or, you know, military intervention or, for example, right now, intelligence intervention, which has been a really interesting development over the past, like, five years of, you know, liberals going insane over Trump um, and a concerning, concerning one as well. But it really is a kind of, you know, I, I, I like the way that, Brace, when you linked um, earlier, when we were talking, when you linked this to how, when we, you know, our previous episode with Vince Bevins on, you know, the tactics deployed in Indonesia, the psychological element, I think, is really key, and people miss that. It's not just planting bombs and creating chaos. It's like instilling uh, fear and anxiety that manufactures consent for state overreach. Well, I think you can recall the the those Antifa-like uh Facebook posts, right? Where, where, where basically every small town in America at around the same time started spreading these Facebook posts around, you know, whatever their, you know, uh, Clackamas, you know, boat trading or whatever, um, you know, like local Facebook groups where just normal people are and creating this hysteria that Antifa was taking buses and coming to town. And we saw that in the case of, I think, one town in Idaho where basically the whole town came out armed to the teeth and ended up, I think, hassling like a family of black people who were going camping. Uh, and of course, no Antifa was there. But we saw this everywhere. I mean, it was really like a hysteria. And, and you see versions of this both on the on the the, the sort of the Democrats and and the Republicans. For the Democrats, you know, you have this uh, uh, that famous poll that came out not long ago, where Democrats were really like uh, they they trusted most. I think it was Google, Amazon, and the FBI, right? <laughs> And so horrifying. It, it just incredible. And, and, and then and then you have conservatives who, you know, well, we can talk about the QAnon thing, which is literally people calling for a military coup and and mass arrests of, of people and executions. Uh, and then you also just have regular people who are like, you know, pretty freaked out by the riots and stuff and are like, well, we need law and order. And so you have this like funny cleavage where, where both of these sides are really sort of like holding the flag or the state tightly, but they're different parts of it. You know, there's a lot of people in this country right now who are like, Biden needs to get in so things can go back to normal, who are much more like, you know, a lot of the, the, the actions of the past four years have, have far from like discrediting the state in a lot of people's minds, have actually strengthened it 
in a lot of people's minds and in their adherence to it. Um, and so like, you know, it's, it's not of course the same thing as Italy in, in the sixties the and seventies, but there, there is, you know, clearly a historical parallel that you can draw there. Yeah. I mean, going in the other direction, you know, uh, you guys have talked about operation uh, or the Phoenix program that was right. used in Vietnam and became sort of a, ta- a, a, a game plan that was adopted by domestic, you know, policing, you know, Colby, William Colby was the architect of that in Vietnam, later became the CIA director, but he got his start in Italy, uh, mm-hmm. running Gladio in Italy. So there's definitely a, a, a through line from these tactics of political destabilization via false flag to the flip side of it, which is direct security enforcement by the state, you know, where the state is rounding people up, throwing them in prison, interrogating them uh, for being, you know, left wingers. Exactly. Uh, it's a it's a, it's a kind of uh, uh, different way of achieving the same thing and under different you know, political constraints, uh, but it's definitely part of the same overall strategy. Well, we can look too about Brandon, the case of Brandon Darby, right? The uh, the famous incident where I think it was like the two thousand eight. I can't remember exactly when, but it was a Republican National Convention. Uh, you know, this guy just shows up and is like, "Look, I gotta, I gotta." to this, you know, left wing group and says he has a, a trunk full of Molotov cocktails. Would you come with me and let's, let's throw them out some cop cars and, and gets them arrested. Now is like a big time journalist for Breitbart. I mean, these tactics work like they don't, they don't retire them just because they finish one operation. They work and they refine them and they keep them. I mean, that's big, a big theme of this series is that, that they, <laughs> that they're not going to throw away something that, that, that is very effective, at least not as effective as this. Well, as I say, even when they're discovered temporarily, uh, it it doesn't matter. Uh, it you know, they, they still it yeah, still will work true. again in the future, even if people know. Oh, in hindsight, that was a false flag attack, or that was a, a political manipulation by the government. It doesn't matter. It'll still that tactic still works. Yeah, yeah, and, and we can even see like you know the, the, we mentioned there was a few coup attempts in in Italy. I mean, there was another one that happened a few years later. Yeah, I think it was like the commander of the secret services and the commander of the Carabinari, like he was either both or he went from one to the other, created something which I, I think is actually a very beautiful name called the Rose of the Winds Executive Council of Social Salvation, uh, which to be clear, like kind of does sound like an Avakianite offshoot or something. Um, but, you know, like this guy, this guy was part of this P2 sort of deep state. You know, he he created this like... The, the Carabinaris at this point were becoming much more militarized, which also might sound familiar to many of our listeners. Uh, you know, think of the DHS and a lot of uh, uh, police departments, but specifically the DHS, which is now becoming like a national police department. Uh, you know, they start getting things like tanks. And for some reason, these uh, policemen are learning how to parachute. And th- this was exposed in 1974, and, and, and a lot of the plotters were also exposed. And this guy, a right-wing t- Italian trade unionist named Robart, the Ro- Robart, excuse me, Robert Cavallero, said, uh, I think, a surprisingly uh, open quote, uh, We have opted for the strategy of tension, for it is necessary for us to create a, de- desire, a desire for order in the man in the street. The organization has a legitimate role. Its role is to prevent our institutions being placed in jeopardy. When trouble erupts in the country, rioting, trade union pressure, violence, etc., the organization goes into action to conjure up the option of a return to order. When these troubles do not erupt of themselves, they are contrived by the far right, directed and financed by members of the organization.
Yeah, I mean, I think that really says it all. And the and the people, you know, people in the political leadership, um, we, you know, we can talk about why they actually did do it and, and that it was to advance their class interest and all of this, mm-hmm. but their own ideology around it, uh, you know, simultaneous to these attacks happening, this Le Cirque group and Brian Crozier are producing anti-communist propaganda that's being distributed, particularly amongst elites, members of parliament, yep. senior industrialists, convincing them of the threat of communist, uh, you know, uh, uh, subversion within their, within their governments. And so the, 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 the individual who, you know, is just on the street, doesn't know what's going on, may not have all the details, but obviously if you're an elite person, even if you don't agree with what's happening, you know, you may catch an inkling, but you're primed, even these elites are being primed to accept it with all of this anti-communist propaganda that the far right uh, of the elite was was producing during this time period. Well, this sort of reminds me too of the just absolute hysteria about about Islam and about you know Sharia law. That that really, I mean, I, I guarantee you, in the year two thousand, if you'd asked the average man on the street what the fuck Sharia law is, and like you know, or asked them where Iraq or Saudi Arabia or any of these countries are, they would have told you to fuck off. They don't know. I mean, why should they? Uh, but we see like a real repeat. I think people are like expecting this to happen in the exact same way where like the government starts warning everyone about socialism. And obviously Trump has said some unkind words about socialism. Uh, but really like we can see like a direct line from from the way that communism is treated here to the way that Islam is treated later uh, in, in, in the present day. I mean, where it became this really just mass hysteria and, you know, there were people being beaten, uh, you know, usually Sikhs for some people love shooting Sikhs and being like, Oh, I thought he was Muslim. Um, but, uh, it's, it's, it's really astounding. Like, I mean, and that came out of the same primordial soup. Like that's the, you know, they, they use the Crozier method. Yeah. They like, you know, you, you, you have this, I mean, obviously because we're talking about this in the context of nine 11, you have this false flag terrorist attack. You have to give people a narrative for what happened. You can't obviously say what actually happened, so you have to give an explanation for what happened. So you use the media apparatus, you know, you fill it with all of your propaganda, some of which, you know, the groundwork has already been laid, right? Like we talked about that uh, that uh, article about the idea that Al-Qaeda would be able to make anthrax in right. a cave. That article came out a week yes. before 9-11, right? So you sort of lay the groundwork, give people this expectation that this is going to, you know, something like this might happen. Uh and then, you know, you have these nice cleavages where kind of the in the no crowd says, oh, I, I just read this article. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's very it seems oh, silly. This Jeffrey but this Goldberg article works. is really prescient. Yeah, right. Exactly. And I mean, that's it sounds very like silly almost, but that's literally how it works. They, right. you know, they sort of have this media operation ongoing. So the same thing is happening in Italy at this time. Right. They're they're sort of you have these terrorist attacks that are being done by the state blamed on the left. Simultaneously, you're creating this propaganda uh, that's being, you know, through all of the mainstream, you know, newspapers are all saying, oh, it's the left, you know, oh, it's the left wing, it's the communists mm-hmm. doing this. So it's, it's both parts of it have to be sort of active at the same time. I mean, you can trace that back to, you know, we talked about Operation Northwoods before, but I think a really famous instance of this is the main explosion in Cuba. When, when, when the main, which I believe was a cargo ship. Uh, exploded because, well, either intentionally or unintentionally in its hold, uh, there was some sort of explosives in its hold. Uh, and and it wasn't uh, the Spanish, uh, but American newspapers, I think led by Hearst, 
you know, created the famous remember the main thing and basically created this, this, this media excuse to get into the war that America really wanted to get into. I mean, they were ready to sail for the Philippines and, and have the battle for Manila Harbor like the next day. Uh, and, and I mean, that's a tactic we've seen again and again, because the media is, is an arm of the military in many senses, you know, I mean, uh, especially podcasts where like they, the Navy seals of that. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's just really like the playbook is, it's a simple fucking playbook, right? Like, and they just get better at it. Yeah. Yeah. I think like that and, and even getting to, um, to get too involved in the details also, because no matter what happened to the main, right, the reaction to the Americans was way, like, yes. completely, compl- had nothing to do with what happened to one ship, right? right? Yeah. They invaded, you know, they took, they want, you know, the United States wanted a, a colony, so they, they use this as an excuse to do that. So even to get it too involved in the details of it is to miss that, you know, they're either waiting for something like this to happen, they know it will, because they've sort of seeded it out there, or they're directly doing it themselves. In either case... You know, very clearly, it's it's a little tiny. They get their foot in the door, and then they can just throw it wide open and do whatever they want. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. It's 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 uh, it, it, it. If it didn't work, they wouldn't do it. I think. You know, we've been talking a lot about Italy, and and Gladio is, of course, like mainly associated with Italy. Although lately, I think Belgium, which we're going to talk about right now, has has gotten a lot more attention. Um, but to be clear, like when Ben earlier mentioned the mafia as well uh, and, and organized crime, we're about to talk about some criminals right here. But the mafia is, and we'll have to do, we'll probably have to do like an actual series on the mafia because mafia connections in this and the Vatican's connections to this is just. There's a lot, you know, it would, it would take, it would take a very, very, very long episode to get into that. But like an illustrative example is of course the U S was helped by the mafia to invade Sicily. You know, they, they, they busted these guys out of prison, brought them basically the whole cast of boardwalk empire down to fucking Southern Italy where they invaded. Um, but also in like Marseille for, for instance, in France, I think in 48, the communist party was, you know, had a lot of power on the docks there. It's a very important port and the mafia and American intelligence wanted to smuggle heroin through those docks. And so they just basically killed a bunch of communists, drove them out of town. Uh, and, and we see that like connection between criminals, between organized crime and, and smaller criminal gangs in the far right just constantly during this period. Yeah, I mean, there's like a, uh, a real parallel between the way that, um, you know, drug, the drug traffic infiltrates the uh, supposed police mechanism, right? Like the, mm. the history of the American, you know, DEA and, and Federal Bureau of Narcotics before that, you know, it's a history of it, of it immediately being infiltrated by the drug traffickers because, you know, the drug traffickers are the same elite as, as the rest of the elite. You know, it doesn't matter where you make your money. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like Belgium is a good example of, you know, the gendarmes being, uh, quasi infiltrated uh, you know ordered from the top and simultaneously infiltrated from below yeah. i guess uh by these sort of criminal uh and right-wing paramilitary networks um uh you know i think i don't know if we mentioned his name but paul Vandenboynens, i think is how his name is uh pronounced mm-hmm. he's a belgian uh he's he's kind of the belgian andriotti he was prime minister briefly he was defense minister for a long time classic Defense- parapost for a gladiator guy to hold 
Yes. Oh, yeah. But between yeah, between uh, Franz Josef Strauss and uh, and yeah. Paul and Boyens and uh, Andriotti, that that's sort of the trifecta of, of defense ministers. Um, and he was, you know, in addition to, of course, being a notorious pedophile, uh, he was connected to the Dutroux affair. He was he was implicated by a couple of testimonies. Um, he was also very closely connected to this Le Cirque, uh, European and international elite right wing organization. Um, he was sort of the, the Belgian representative, most senior Belgian representative of this group. Um, and he had a, a lieutenant working for him, a guy named Florimin Daman, uh, who was also connected to Yves Guerin Sirac um, and uh, a guy named Emile Le Cerf. Uh, and Le Cerf was this Belgian. Um, he, he technically, I guess, his sort of front or, or where he drew a paycheck from mm-hmm. was these magazines that he was running. Uh, these were these were far right wing uh, propaganda magazines that were very popular. There was sort of this uh, group, or I, maybe like milieu of kind of uh, veterans and intelligence and military veterans, gendarme veterans, uh, as well as active duty members of these groups who were who sort of met in these uh, shooting clubs as sort of a social uh, place where they would meet. And so between between those sort of shooting clubs and this um, this magazine, these these right wing magazines. Uh, of a number of different right-wing paramilitary groups emerged that basically had infiltrated or, or included many members who were in the gendarme. Uh, so the first was, I think, a group called the Front Genuse or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Genuse is uh, doesn't mean young. Yeah, yeah, a lot, and then and this is kind of a theme because in in Germany, a lot of the early Gladio groups were also like the Deutsche Jugend, you know, Bund mm-hmm. or something like that. In, like it was in all, France always, too, there was Junior Europa. Yeah, and they were I never think, actually do, young. Like they were in yeah, their forties. Well, it's like it's like when you see people who are like, "Yeah, I'm in the young socialists." And it's like, "All right, man, happy thirty fifth birthday." Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. But like, it, it's it's. I I believe Junior Europa had also some connections to them. I don't know if I mentioned them last uh, last episode, but one of the most fascinating guys, Jean Thriart. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but he met with Joe N. Lai in Romania and tried to get guns uh, from the Romanians, and it did not. Or excuse me, from the Chinese. To create like a Western Europe third positionist insurgency, and they were like, "Yeah, get the fuck out of here!" Like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. We're not gonna, we're not gonna hang out with Nixon for like another seven years. Yeah, <laughs> but they, I mean, this like, yeah, because because this milieu of people, uh, you know, these like uh, active duty and veterans of these security agencies, you know, they had their similar to how the elite have informal uh, places where they meet and discuss things. Mm-hmm. So did these groups. And um, yeah, you know, Demand and therefore uh, uh, VDB is how he's called in Belgium. So I'll just call him VDB. So I don't have to say his name anymore. <laughs> but he he is a, he is essentially managing these right wing paramilitaries and organizing a coup. Uh, and actually, the the Belgian state security agency um, has a couple of, of investigators trying to figure out what's happening. These investigations themselves, obviously, there's all kinds of moles. So the, you know, the, these investigations get stymied. But it paints a picture of. Uh, a sort of, uh, I mean, I guess you call it a deep state of, yeah. of, you know, right wing uh, fascist and neo fascists within the security agencies and all the way up to the highest levels, the, the defense minister, uh, who want to try to put these uh, right wing uh, policies into play. Um, and, you know, one of the ways that they do this is, is very similar to Italy. They, they stage terrorist attacks. Uh, and, the, you know, there's these Brabant uh, massacres that took place outside of Brussels in the sort of, I guess, early mid 80s. I think it was 82 to 85 was when they mm-hmm. happened. Um, 
And basically it was, it was, you know, the, the official explanation still is they don't know who did this. Um, it was basically these groups of armed men, uh, you know, with, with military weaponry, uh, because, you know, military small arms are not easy to get in Europe. So it's no. strange to see. No, it's, it's, uh, what's the word for it? Cocked. Yeah. 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 <laughs> exactly. So when you see, you know, you can, you can go into a Walmart and see a SPAS 12 in America. Uh, mm-hmm. but in Belgium to see a guy with a SPAS 12 coming up to a, a supermarket, that's a little shocking, uh, especially yeah. when he starts... It's- to be clear, the, the the Belgian government recently released a picture of one of the Brabant killers with the SPAS-12, and yeah, it was yeah. earlier this year, asking for people to identify him. Yeah, he was known as the tall man because he was he was very tall, He was so he was prominent. That's, that's crazy. That's also my nickname. That's what Liz calls me. <laughs> I'm sure it was said in you know some kind of Belgian language that I don't know. It probably didn't sound yeah. as cool. Uh, but uh, he, was, he was identified as being kind of the lead, you know, the ringleader of this. Uh, they still don't know. Yeah, they don't know who he was, um, but it was very clearly, you know, uh, people suspected strongly at the time that these guys were were uh, had political purposes because of how well organized they were and the fact that they didn't seem to be criminals. They would, you know, uh, who who rolls up on a grocery store with a crew of six armed to the teeth to steal what's in the cash register? Right, you're going to wearing few... wearing masks with uh, the faces of French politicians on them. Too. Yeah, exactly. And one time, the tall man himself. In blackface, in a Afro wig. Yeah, it's it's like something at a Point Break. Like it's not a it's not something that an actual bank you know bank robber. But they would, would do. just roll up to these fucking grocery stores, which I mean, grocery stores do not have a lot of. It's not a fucking bank. No. And they would just start immediately blasting people. It's not like they would go in and like go to the tower and be like, oh, "Give me, you know, take me to the safe." Is like they would open the van door and just shoot it like an eight year old with a Spas twelve. And they would I mean, wait it's, for it's the incredible. police to come back. And like yeah. they would be there sitting, waiting for the police, and the police would show up. They would start firing at the police as they drove away. I mean, they wanted to create the biggest spectacle that they possibly could. But they also did things that were very suspicious, like they attacked uh, and stole military equipment from a gendarme warehouse. And very, very few people would have known uh, that that equipment that they stole was there. Um, so it's it's very clearly you know people with insider knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as as they investigated, they discovered that it it was very likely. Uh, this this Westland New Post group, which was a descendant of the of the French Janus that we that we mentioned, Paul Latinus, and and uh, was one of the key key people involved in both of those groups. So he he becomes one of the key suspects in having done this, uh, and I think he uh, committed suicide in prison. I think that is how he uh, officially died. Yep, he did under mysterious circumstances in prison. He probably had a heart attack and flung himself out the window. <laughs> uh, w- one thing about. Uh, WNP that I find extremely fascinating is, uh, and, and this is thanks to to friend of the pod and former guest Recluse, who's got it on his Visa View website, is that the WNP had ties to the Wacken Hut organization. Now, the Wacken Hut is not the place where you go on your lunch break at work to calm down a little bit. Uh, Wacken Hut was one of these sort of private security and investigation, a Kroll type firm, let's call them. Uh, that emerged out of this really fucking psycho guy's imagination named Wackenhut. And I think with a couple of other FBI guys. Uh, he wasn't FBI, but his, his boys were. Well, they start spreading to Belgium in the 80s. And they immediately only hire Westland New Post guys. And these guys are fucking thugs, right? Like, this is going out and hiring, like, the Dumbos at the Unite the Right rally to be, like, your security guards. And, and that's what they were doing. They were doing a lot of private security, private investigation. And so they put some guys in charge of a synagogue's security. 
uh, pretty much immediately after this, this is 1982, the synagogue blows up uh, in the home of one of their uh, employees, a Wackenhut employee, a guy named Barbier, who's a secretary of that Lanius guy. Uh, they found plans to blow up the synagogue. <laughs> it, that that sort of gets glossed over, but Wackenhut is is not exactly tallying up a good score with the the Belgian public. At one point, I found this really fascinating, and I I, I couldn't figure out if this was the same instance as another one I'm going to mention too. But at one point, American Army parachutists, uh, with the aid of WMP Wackenhut guys, they parachute into the fucking Ardennes forest and assault a police station. Now, this is supposed to be like an exercise to catch if the police are off guard, but they literally assault the police station and they kill a cop, which is just astounding to me. Like the American military parachutes into Belgium and kills a policeman is, is, is just, it's just wild. But anyways, they get kicked out of, the, uh, of Belgium in the mid 80s uh, and Wackenhut becomes G4S, which is all these motherfuckers are named shit like this now. But you know, all these companies always change their names. They have a million fucking spooky things about them. I mean, we could do a series about Wackenhut alone, but just, I think an illustrative example is that they operate prisons in South Africa for profit. Uh, so you can imagine what's going on there. They also guard nuclear testing sites. Well, anyways, uh, they came back sort of into the public consciousness when one of their employees did something pretty naughty, which is the Pulse nightclub shooting. That's right. Omar Mateen, the guy who fucking shot up the Pulse nightclub was a member of Wackenhut. And, and you're like, okay, well, you know, maybe they got a lot of employees. This guy was not supposed to be able to carry a gun, but he passed his psychological examination given to him by G4S slash Wackenhut. Unfortunately, it seems like the lady who did the psychological examination had actually stopped practicing uh, psychiatry, psychology, or whatever several years before this and had no idea how her names got on the documents that said this guy could carry a gun. They ended up paying a $150,000 fine for that, and it was basically never talked about again. Well, so far, we've, so we've talked a lot about Italian Gladio. We've talked a lot about Belgium, this kind of like history of false flag attacks. I mean, I think it's obvious why we're talking about that on an episode about 9-11, <laughs> ostensibly about 9-11. But maybe we can spell out kind of the, what kind of history we're, 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 or what kind of framework we're trying to position, right? Because the, I think the entire purpose of this series was not to, despite maybe what some people would like, is not to say whether or not, yes, no, we think Bush literally did 9-11. That's not the point, right? And that's not even the point of saying Bush did 9-11. But as we kind of, um, I think, Ben, as you put it in our one of our first episodes, is like, how do we position 9-11 less as um, like a one-off event or something that... Uh, you know, disrupts a kind of, you know, uh, linear march of history, but is actually more so um, or, or, or better understood as a continuation of um, lots of other uh, projects, histories, narratives, characters, people, politics, and, you know, uh, geopolitical goals, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, we've, we've, 
we tried to do that. I think when we, the way we, we sort of talked about the Bush family in the first episodes, in the first couple episodes, and, you know, kind of larger U.S. goals in the Middle East region. But I do think that it's, I think it was important for us to do this episode so people understand that, you know, even thinking of the possibility of 9-11 being a false flag attack is not in any way out of the realm of possibility or in any kind of like zone of quackery, right? Yeah, I think that this, the, the uh, early we mentioned that this sort of Alex Jones or Sandy Hook association right. with the phrase false flag and, and it's sort of, uh, you know, whatever is the truth about that particular event, it became uh, a sort of, uh, you, can't, you can't talk about it, you can't say it. Uh, mm-hmm. It's literally, to, it, I mean, it's literally offensive to, to try to claim that something is a false flag. Right. It offends people when you say that, uh, some people. But it, I think, uh, you know, through these examples we've talked about, this is a common military and political tactic that's been used uh, all over the world, all through history. And, you know, to speak about Gladio in particular, uh, you know, post-World War II, there's a, a very clear group of people in charge. You know, there's this uh, owning class uh, that has, you know, post-World War II, a particular American inflection. Uh, they want to manage world politics. They want to ensure that their businesses are not interrupted. They want to ensure that the United States dominates the geopolitical situation so that this particular elite can make lots of money. Um, and this this tactic of uh, creating this environment where, first off, your opponents are discredited because they're associated with killing civilians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and simultaneously, it creates the excuse for your state apparatus to intervene in every possible way in people's lives. Um, and that's, it, it. you know, it's, it has its, uh, I guess you would say it, its current incarnation has maybe some of its origins in Gladio. I mean, this was literally some of the first post-war political manipulations of that type. Uh, but 9-11, I think, is another clear example of it. Uh, and in a lot of cases, the same institutions. I mean, the CIA, MI6, you know, some of these elite circles like Le Cirque are involved in both. Some of the people have changed. Uh, some of the people have died. Some new people have become members. But in some cases, some of the people are the same. You know, you have Kissinger saying in Italy to Aldo Moro, you know, you cannot have communists and socialists in your government. Aldo Moro tries that and then dies almost immediately after. Uh, and, you know, we, we talked earlier, I think, in the previous episode about Kissinger being at the center of this uh, very elite connected you know, AIG, Marshall McLennan, Kroll, uh, kind of uh, intelligence elite nexus that is is right there at the at the World Trade Center at Ground Zero. Um, yeah, literally in the buildings of the WTC. In the in the very floors that are hit by the plane, you know. Yeah. Uh, if that's not a coincidence, it's at least a very interesting synchronicity that we should uh, take a look at and try yeah. to understand. I sense an a causal connecting principle. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think I do think that you know even after listening to all of this, if you haven't bought into the 9/11 was a false flag theory, um, I think that looking at these uh, circles, looking at these groups, looking at what they've been up to, uh, is very important. And it's it's um, you know the the media lies about it, the media conceals it for a reason. It is important to understand these historical events, why they were done. Uh, and and also just to kind of uh, appreciate, uh, you know, to understand that in order to control the Italian political process, they had to kill 500 people. 
you know, over the course of something yeah. like, uh, you know, 18 years or something like that, you know, that's a, uh, that's a, that's a crime. I mean, that is, that is you know, not something that yeah. should be allowed to happen. Uh, and yet it is how the elite, uh, this, this, you know, bourgeoisie owning class governs this society is, is via these, uh, criminal terrorist actions. Um, and I think when you, when you, you know, put 9-11 in that context, it is, I think uh, at times a little bit overwhelming to understand that they would kill thousands of people uh, and bring down large buildings on a single day. Uh, but when you put it in the context of what they were willing to do in the past, uh, and when you understand these these overlapping elite and intelligence and business networks uh, that are at the center of this, it, it becomes a lot more understandable. Uh, and uh, I think that kind of opens you up to say, okay, what are some of these facts that I was not willing to uh, look at before Am I willing to have a little bit more of an open mind uh, when I look at this stuff and when I look at what I what I previously thought was was settled? Yeah, I mean, I think there is an impulse for a lot of people to think that, like, well, the U.S. government is bad. You know, they're evil. They've done genocides in the past. But, like, during my lifetime, you know, this this whole end of history mindset, which, you, you know, everyone talks about, is, is, is real. You know, it's like they're bastards, but, like, there are bastards. They wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't murder thousands of people and in, in, in crash airliners into a building. Like, that's absurd right but i think like if you look at, at especially post-war history um uh, what of what america has done both at home and abroad i mean it to me it seems more absurd that it's not one of those attempts by them you know like that that, that it's not a false flag and i know i've said this before but it's like this if this stuff sounds wacko to you ask yourself why it sounds wacko Ask yourself, like, if you're hearing us and we're talking, you're hearing, like, Alex Jones and Sandy Hook and all this stuff. Like, no, man, like, Ben's a normal guy. Like, me and Liz are, like, normal. Our producer is not a raving... Oh, he does have his shirt off. He does weigh 800 pounds, but, like, he's not that sweaty. Uh, You know, like, I'm a pretty... You know, I, okay, I'm actually pretty irrational, but, like, everyone else here is pretty rational. Uh, and, and this is not at all beyond the pale. Like this isn't, this isn't at all something unusual. I mean, I, I think, I think one does have to be careful to not like become somebody who just views the world as like a shadow war between various groups and sort of into conspiracism. Like, I think, I think for me, like keeping myself firmly grounded and being like, well, this is just an aspect of the class struggle. Like this is just an organ for the bourgeoisie, just like the communist party or whatever is the often the organ for the proletariat. Uh, because if you do, you know, you start, you know, there are a lot of people out there you'll encounter who think like there's a new, you know, new world order and all this stuff. And I think that's, that's because if you don't kind of come out this with like a class analysis, then it's really, I mean, I can't blame people for thinking that, you know, I mean, this is such a, a magnificent crime on such a vast scale for so many decades done by these people who are in charge that like, I mean, it's, 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 it's shocking. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it's not shocking all at once or whatever. It's not like you read a sentence and you're like, Oh my God, like this is a depraved government, but like taken even in small doses, you know, you read about it, you gain knowledge about it for like a long period of time. You can get to thinking like, wow, these are like, you know, you start getting some strange ideas about what happened, but like what really happened is the facts, man. Like it's, <laughs> there was a false flag attack to start a war and to create a, the political conditions, which the people who did the false flag attack wanted to create. It's really that simple. Yeah. I couldn't put it any better than that. Well... It makes me sad that on today, September 11th, 
Uh, we are ending this series, but hopefully we're going to have you back in the future, either to talk more about 9-11, because, you know, we can always talk yeah, more about I'm, 9-11. Yeah, I'm going to say, we're not technically, we're ending the series for now. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, but also maybe for some other things. Yeah, totally. <laughs> well, there's also a lot of 9-11s, too. I, I, would I know, you know, I was thinking that, and I was Dude. like, we're going to continue the series, but we're going to move to Chile. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I was thinking Benghazi, but yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Ben, thank you so much. This is always such a pleasure. So much fun. Uh, Check Ben out at House Trotter. We always link to his Twitter. Very funny on Twitter. Um, And yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's always a blast. And uh, I would love to come back and talk about the next (laughs) (laughs) 9-11. Sounds good. So I'm Liz. My name is Brace. We are joined by producer Young Chomsky. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.